This is the podcast for Centerpoint Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and we are so glad that you're with us. We are on a series called The Elephant in the Room. During this series, we will answer all of the questions you submitted dealing with a variety of topics, all answered through a biblical lens. For more information on our church, you can visit centerpointtn.com. But for now, let's jump into the message. All right, so we are in week four, the final week of this series called The Elephant in the Room. If it's your first Sunday here, uh, this is very unusual from what we normally do. What we did is on Easter Sunday and since then, we've opened it up for you guys to submit questions, and I've been taking my time answering a variety of these questions, and we've left no topic untouched really, and some of these are the most difficult ones that I've been procrastinating till the end. Uh, I do not have a co-host this week, and the main reason is because I'm going to try to answer more questions than we've ever had, and so I'm going to just kind of get through some of these rapid fire, Um, but we're going to be covering a variety of topics. So let's, uh, let's jump into question one. Can we just jump right into it? Yep. Again, if it's your first Sunday, uh, they aren't normally like this, but I think that God can speak to you. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask, can we keep this going? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Uh, but I've had some people you know, ask, can we make this an annual thing? And I think probably yes. Um, we, talked, we, we did this a year ago as well. And so it's a good time maybe once a year to address where we are in culture and some questions that you have because things change and shift. So here we go. Question number one. Why, in the first, I think six or seven are pretty rapid fire. Why don't people live as long in today's generation as they did in the Old Testament? Uh, and this is a really cool question. So, so what we're going to do today during our time is really do what, what we call apologetics, which is why you believe what you believe and how does Scripture back it up. And, and I said this in the first service. I think this is a spot where the church has kind of failed young adults because we have people that are growing up in church and we just say, hey, just believe it and just trust us. And, and, and then when they go away to college or they leave, we, we find it alarming or we don't understand why when they have people in the academic world or the people who are far from God that know their stuff a whole lot more than they do, why they turn from it. Because we've never really t- taken time to explain the why. And so that's my heart behind it. It's really what I do with a lot of the preaching is like I, I'm just passionate about building foundational blocks as to why you believe what you believe and let you determine you know, determine it based upon the will of God and the word of God, not just how we feel, yeah? So this is a great question. If you go back and read the Old Testament, people lived a long time. Like, I mean, Gerald would have been one of the youngest people around. And if you're here for, I just, by the way, side note, I met somebody that came here uh, for the second time and they said, we just had to, we've been listening online for a while and we had no idea who Gerald was, but we hear about him all the time. So we had to just show up and, and meet who Gerald is. So if it's your first time, look for a giant ball of gray cotton candy sitting on top of somebody's head. And that's Gerald. But anyways, if you'll notice like in the Old Testament, they, they lived a long time. And, and why? And why don't they live as long? This is a, this is a great question. And, and I think it has a variety of things and issues and, and, and variables, but I think the main reason, it falls in the tree of life. So we read that in the book of Genesis, there's two trees in the Garden of Eden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. And the tree of life is there, and because of the tree of life, Adam and Eve were created to live forever. We all, as humans, were created to live forever. And when sin came in the picture, then we would have lived forever in a state of damnation. 
And so we think that God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden because he's angry and he's mean and they're grounded, but it's not true. It's actually an act of mercy because they would have lived forever eternally damned. And so in the tree of life, there's, we don't know for sure if it was the actual fruit. I can tell you that it probably wasn't an apple. So I'm sorry what they told you in, in vacation Bible school or in the opening credits to Desperate Housewives, I've heard, uh, is it wasn't an apple. <laughs> that wasn't in the first service. It's not in the notes either, surprising, because uh, they don't grow in that region. I guess it could be because God can do whatever he wants, but, but it was either the fruit or it was something to do with the proximity of being close to the tree that allowed them to live forever. We kept seeing this regeneration of their cells. And so when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they, the, guy, the Bible says that they put an angel with a flaming sword in front of the gate to prevent them from coming back in. And so what we see is a degeneration from that point forward of the lives getting systematically shorter because they're one generation away from the tree of life. And, and, and so that makes sense when you think about it. I also think that there is um, a lack of disease that has to play a part to play. And I also think that probably their diet has a lot to, to play with that. You know, not processed foods and hormones and fast food, except for Taco Bell, totally good for you. But everything else is not necessarily good for you. So I'm sure diet had a part to play. And because I'm a nerd about things like this, I went back and looked at some of the main patriarchs of the Old Testament to kind of see how long they lived. And I put it all together for you. Uh, so we have Adam recorded, and scripture doesn't say everybody, but it does say some. We have Adam that lived 930 years. And then, in, then we see Noah at 600, his sons at 600, another one at 438. And then the flood. And from the moment of the flood, it, it drops significantly. Father Abraham is 175, Isaac 180, Moses 120, and then it lowers pretty dramatically King David at 70 and Solomon at 80. So you'll see pretty quickly it kind of falls into a pattern of where we are. And there's a few exceptions with Methuselah and a few people who, who didn't die. Um, but I believe that the the geographic proximity to the tree of life has a whole lot more to do with it than anything else. And also, if you read in Revelation, that tree of life is back, and we see it again show up, in which we will live forever with the Lord in heaven. Can I get an amen? Next question, it says, what does God think about birth control? Now, now this is a funny question because some of you in here are like, some of you men are like, oh, please, Jason, like, do me a solid and say that it's okay. Uh, and then some of you ladies are like, please say it's not okay because I need more babies, all right? Matt Tucker, you're, 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 not to mention any names, but, but I got you. What, what, does God <laughs> what does God think about birth control? I don't know. Uh, scripture doesn't really talk about it. Uh, and different people have different opinions on this. I know, shocking. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that birth control is condemned or a form of it is condemned. I do believe that there are some iterations of birth control that, that do stop a life that has been formed. So it depends on where you think life is created. Jason, personally, I believe it is at conception. And so there are some forms of birth control that do eliminate a life. And I believe that you need to be careful what you take and educate yourself on that. But scripture doesn't really give us an idea on that. 
Question number three, I just have the word angels that's going to be up on the screen because there were a lot of different questions about angels. Uh, did I see a guardian angel? Do I have a guardian angel? What are angels' purposes? Are they fat, naked babies that float around and shoot bows and arrows at people? Like all kinds of questions. And I know last week we talked about demons. So this week I just wanted to talk a little bit about angels. So the first thing that we have to know is that angels are immortal, but they're not eternal. They are immortal, but they are not eternal. And what I mean by that is they will live forever, but they haven't always lived. Only Yahweh has lived always. And so they were created. When were they created? Well, there's different opinions on that. Some people say that it is during the seven days of creation, right before the seven days of creation, a thousand years earlier. We don't really know for sure. But we know they were created. And they're not just clones. They were each created individually with a name, with a personality, and with different purposes. And so what are the different purposes? Well, what we see in Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 1, they call, uh, they, uh, the writer of Hebrews calls them ministering spirits, that their job is to serve the people of God. And so this is where I think we get the idea of guardian angels. We see that demons, as well as angels, are very territorial. So is it possible to have a guardian angel that's over your family, over your region, over your neighborhood? I think it's very plausible. And I also think that we see in Scripture that different angels were over particular cities as well. We see that angels execute judgment. We see that they are help in spreading God's word. We see that they wage spiritual battles. And so even we were over at somebody's house for dinner and they were telling me this story and they said, is this my guardian angel? And I, and I told them, I was like, it, it sounds, it has every hallmark of what I hear when I think that guardian angels show up. In fact, in Hebrews it says that by showing hospitality, some of you have served angels without knowing it. Uh, and so I think that they are all involved in what we're doing. Uh, so if there's two-thirds of the angels in heaven. How, how many are there? We don't know for sure. At the minimum, I think that the basement is probably hundreds of thousands, all the way to who knows how many millions there are. But they have characteristics and character traits and names because that's how big our God is. Next question, is it bad for a Christian to have an intense fear of death? Sort of. Bad is probably a wrong word. Like, it's like, am I going to get grounded if I'm afraid of dying? Uh, I, I, I'm not necessarily looking forward to dying. Not necessarily looking forward to the deter deterioration of my body, which I've already started to feel after I eclipsed 40. It's like, my gosh, things... This is a side note. This is not in the notes. So who knows what's going to come out of my mouth. Uh, we went ice skating a couple months ago. I used to love that as a kid. It was miserable! My feet hurt, my back hurt, I was exhausted, and then I was yelling at all these punk teenagers that are whizzing by like they're on the Olympic team. And I'm like, bro, I got old. I'm going to go get me a corn dog from the snack shack and sit down and watch everybody else because the Lord is my shepherd. He knows what I want, you know? Uh, that, that's heresy. That's not Scripture at all. Is it, is it bad for a Christian to have a fear of death? I would ask you why. What are you afraid of? Do you believe that Jesus conquered death? Do you believe that death has lost its sting? Do you believe that when Jesus said he's gone to prepare a place for us? Do you believe it? Do you, do you believe when Paul said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind or heart can imagine the things that God has in store for us? Well, what are we afraid of? Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah 41.10 
So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Listen to what Jesus said himself in the beloved disciples' gospel, 14, verse 18. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. So I don't think death is something that we have to fear. I don't think it's something that we should necessarily look forward to the dying process. Somebody said, I'm not afraid of heights, I'm afraid of falling. I understand that. Uh, but I'm not afraid of death, and I don't think anybody who's a child of God should. Question five. Told you these were rapid fire. Have you watched the new Super Mario Brothers movie yet? If so, what is your review? I'm an 80s kid. Of course I saw it. I brought my family with me. What's my review? 10 out of 10, baby. 10 out of 10. Raise your hand if you saw the Mario Brothers movie. Hadley, what'd you think? Really good. All right. Next question. Do you have a life verse? No. Next question. No, I want to talk about that for just a second. A life verse is awesome. So this is where some people actually take a verse and they declare it as the verse of their life. I don't have one yet. I'm open to it. I think it's great. The reason I don't have a life verse is the same reason I never got a tattoo. I'm fine with you people that have tattoos. But I, I've also seen bad tattoos and tattoos in certain locations that didn't age well or tattoos that were certain things that were really cool when you were in high school, but by the time you hit 55 and that REO speed wagon is drooping a little bit on your saggy skin, like, you might regret it, yeah? So that's why I don't have tattoos. You're wondering, what does that have to do with anything? I think it has to do with this, I think, is I'm afraid if I have a life verse that like five years from now, I'll be in a different season and there'll be something that's more important to my life, and I'm gonna be like, I want to change my life first, but by then I've already declared it as my life first. So for different seasons, I want something different. But I do give myself a verse of the year, and I'm challenging you to do this because I want to go into a new year with a declaration. Sometimes I feel like God gives it to me prophetically. Sometimes it's something that just means something to me, or sometimes it's something that I want declared over my year. So I give it my life first, or my my year verse, sorry, not life verse. Isaiah 40, 31 is Jason's verse for 2023. If you've got a card for me in the last couple of months, it probably had this down at the bottom. It says, but those whose hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's my declaration over my year. And what's cool about having a verse of the year is I write them on the inside of my Bible like a spiritual Stanley Cup, and I can go back and see all of the different ones, and they stick out to me for different reasons. Uh, Luke one thirty seven for with God nothing shall be impossible. Galatians 6, 9, Acts 4, 13, Ephesians 2, 10. Those are mine kind of that I've had over the last couple of years, and so I want to declare them. King David said, thy word have I hidden in my heart. And so for me, it's a way that I can just memorize Scripture and declare it over my years. So that's my challenge to you. If you don't have one, it's not too late. Declare one. Who do you want to be? What do you want over your life? Some people have life quotes, and you're quoting like Wayne Gretzky and Tupac and Michael Scott and all these people. And I'm like, bro, where's your declaration of the Word of God over your life? So get one. Next question. So, so, so those were the rapid-fire questions. 
So for the next three is where we're going to pack them over the next 24 minutes. Uh, and, and there's some heavy ones, but I think they're fantastic. Great questions. Uh, so this next question is, what happens after we die? A great apologetics question. What happens to you after you die? Because I'm going to guess that a huge percentage of Christians don't actually know, and it's, they've maybe filled in the blanks with what they think instead of what the Word of God says. So this one, like, I'm going to do my best to make it as simple as possible so that I understand it, but don't check out on me because you should want to know what's going to happen to you when you die. You should want to know. So first of all, let's find out what Jesus said about it. And I'm just going to tell you that you will live forever. The location of where it is is up to you. You will live forever with God in glory, or you will be eternally separated from Him forever. And you think to yourself like, what kind of God who is love would send somebody to hell forever and He doesn't? He gives you what you ask for. So if here on earth you say, I reject God, I want nothing to do with the things of God, then why would he force it upon you for eternity? He would give you what you asked for forever. Now, I don't want to know what one minute separated from God feels like, let alone with no hope forever. So listen to what Jesus said. This is recorded in the tax collector's gospel, Matthew 25, verse 31. These are words in red. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. The Son of Man is Jesus, and He's talking about when He returns with His angels is the second coming. And so at the second coming, verse 32, all of the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people from one and another as a sheep separates, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right side and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your what? Inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So that tells you when that was created. Let's skip to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels. So who was hell created for? Not you. For the devil and for the demons and for the false prophet. Verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what happens when you die? Believe it or not, you're not in that final destination yet. No one's in hell yet, and no one's in heaven yet. What we actually see is like this holding place, kind of this lobby. In Hebrew, it's called Sheol, and Greek is called Hades, and it's a holding place. Now, it's like a waiting room. I'm going to imagine if you're going to hell, the waiting room is going to be like the DMV's waiting room. They're going to Disney World, praise God. If you, are, if, you, <laughs> if you are going to paradise, then it's probably nice. It's probably comfortable furniture and, you know, snacks and all kinds of stuff. Uh, just trying to be funny, failing, but trying. But there's a holding place, Sheol or Hades. And what the Word of God says is that there is a chasm. You'll see that in, in, in the story of Lazarus, the rich man. You'll see this chasm. Now, 
once you're there, nothing in Scripture indicates that you can go from one side to the other. It's separated. One, the punishment begins right away for the unrighteous, and you're with the presence of the Lord if you are righteous. That's why Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I don't care what Catholicism tells you, there's no indication in Scripture that once you're on one side, you can go earn your way back to the other side and burn off your sins. It's, it's just not, it's not in Scripture. And so you're there until the final judgment. When is the final judgment? Well, he said, Jesus said it was after he comes back. Then there's the 1,000-year reign. And then after that, that's when these two judgments occur. And it's really just two different types of judgments. The first one is the great white throne judgment. And the second one is the judgment seat of Christ. So we think this is the same. But it's not. It's two separate judgments that we see in Scripture. This is good stuff to know. If you don't know any of this, don't feel bad. Now you do. The great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. You will not be at both of them. You will be at one or the other. I'll be at the judgment seat of Christ. I hope to see you there. But that choice is ultimately yours. So let's talk first about the great white throne judgment. What is it? Who is it for? It's for unbelievers, those who rejected Christ. And what is it? Let's find out. Recorded in the Revelator's letter, John, who received the revelation of end times, 20 verse 11. Then I saw, as a vision from God, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. When you see revelation and you see the word sea, it's usually referring to a sea of humanity or a sea of the earth. So in this case, it's those who have died. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Who will be the judge at the great white throne judgment? It will be Jesus. Romans 2, 5 through 6. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. That's terrifying. It's a terrifying portion of Scripture that's going to say you will stand before and give an account of your rejection of Jesus and the wrath of God that has been storing up since humanity will be cast upon with his righteous judgment. That's terrifying. But that's not for you and I. At least I hope. We go to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, when I was in middle school, I remember going to this service, and the lady who was teaching it, God bless her soul, she was just, I mean, she was teaching a middle school boys Sunday school class. Like, my gosh, that takes courage, right? Or stupidity. Don't know. And I remember her saying, one day you're going to have to stand before God and give an account of everything you've ever done. And this is middle school, Jason, who's like, bro, I don't want to stand before God and watch that movie of everything I've ever said, thought, looked at, 
talked about with my friends in the locker room. I don't want to see that. And please tell me that my mom and dad aren't going to be standing while we watch this movie next to me. Like, I don't want to have to do that. And the good news is you don't. It's the wrong theology. Because then I see in Scripture over and over and over again this, uh, this idea that as far as the east is, is from the west, that's how far he's removed your transgressions from us. We see that the blood of Jesus covers you once and for all, that you are made righteous by the decision of one man being Jesus. And so, like, those are conflicting, right? If I'm forgiven, then why do I got to stand up and, and, and give an account? Because you're thinking great white throne judgment. You and I who've accepted the blood of Jesus, grace, a free gift, we will stand in the judgment seat of Christ also known as the Bema seat, in which we will receive our inheritance of what we, are, what we have done here. In Revelation 22, 12, God says, I will give each what they deserve. And so we have rewards waiting for us. Now, one person turned in a question uh, that said, like, how is it fair that I followed God my whole life and then somebody can give their life to the Lord 30 seconds before they die and we both go into heaven. And, 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 and so I think it's a good question and the answer is it's not fair. But you're believing in your own righteousness a whole lot more than you. What do you deserve? I don't care if you followed God for 80 years, you deserve hell. But there is inheritance. So let's talk about it. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 6 is Paul writing to the church of Corinth. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For if we live by faith, not by sight, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body than at home and at home with the Lord. He's, this is when, when, when Paul, he receives a vision. He gets brought up to the third heaven. And it's when he comes back and he's like, hey, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He's like, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart can imagine what God has in store for us, and yet we're clinging on to this life. I heard somebody one time at a funeral say, if you could pray loud enough and beg hard enough to bring that loved one who knows the Lord back, they would be so mad at you. Be like, you brought me back to this? Verse 8, we are confident, I say, that we would prefer to be away from the body than at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things that are done while in the body, whether good or bad. And that word bad doesn't translate super well, but basically what that means is things that will not stand the test of fire. And what we mean is this, how nice your house is, will not do diddly squat for your inheritance. I want you to have a nice house. I want a nice house. I think I have a nice house. But that does no eternal rewards. The amount of money you make, nothing. How popular you are here on earth, there's only one person who's popular in heaven. And so those are the things that they mean by bad, meaning it will not stand the test of fire. But it says that we will receive inheritance, inheritance based upon what we do here on earth. So how you live matters. And what you do matters. Now, I want to wrap this question up with just this, this thought for a moment. I want to correct some of your thinking about inheritance equals success in an earthly standpoint. I don't, I don't think inheritance has anything to do with the size of a platform. If you have a blue check mark next to your name, if you build giant orphanages, you know, in other countries, I think all of those things are fine. And, and, but I think 
in our mind we think if I don't reach that limit, then, then I don't have a very big inheritance waiting for me. And, and I don't see that in Scripture. I see that inheritance is based upon are you faithful with what God has called you to do. So God may have, the only thing he needs you to be faithful for is to be raising young godly children that will become men and women of faith. That may be all he's put in front of you. Will you be faithful for it? And if you are, that is your inheritance. It's a matter of faithfulness. I think there's a lot of people in heaven that when we walk, we're gonna be like, dude, who lives in that mansion? And they'll be like, oh, you don't know who they are because on earth they had no following but they were faithful. Oh, right over there is the widow that spent all of her days praying for her grandchildren and gave the might that was faithful. And oh, right over there, yeah, that's the single mom that raised her kids to raise her sons to be godly husbands and godly fathers and godly grandfathers, and that's what God asked her to do. And then I think there's gonna be some people that you're like, hey, where's so-and-so? And they're gonna be like, in that trailer park way over there because they're here, but they... They weren't faithful with what they had, and it's going to shock some of us. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. So be faithful with what God's put in front of you. Be faithful. And it looks different in different seasons. Next question, second to last question. Whew, this is a tough one. When I read this, you're going to be thankful you're not me. <laughs> a family member of mine is in a same-sex relationship, and I have been invited to their wedding. If I don't go, it will cause major issues with my family, but I don't feel right about it. What should I do? Aren't you thankful you're not me? <laughs> I'm going to give you an answer that may be different than you think. Because Scripture isn't super clear on this. Because honestly, culturally, this wasn't a huge issue that they had to deal with. I don't care what some preachers say nowadays that try to stretch the word and put their opinion in between little verses whenever they can. Just study history. It's ludicrous to think that this was a major issue. But I do want to recognize the weight of this question. And I want to tell you, if I, can I just be transparent with you for a moment? Uh, I prayed that God would release me from answering this question. That's why I saved it to the end, just praying that God would tell me, all right, you don't have to do it. A couple of things. One, I, I have career aspirations just like you guys do. And talking about these types of things hurts your career rather than helps your career. You don't get invited to a lot of conferences when you start talking about stuff like this. But what I'm faithful with and what God's asking my faithfulness is do I serve the people who are here in front of me to serve you? And as Paul said, I can either please man or I can please God, but I can't please both. Let me tell you what the church the church is bad about. Most people that go to church will tell you that they are pro-life. But really what they mean is they're pro-baby. Because if we're pro-life, we're pro-whole life. If we think that every human is made in the image of God and is valuable, then up to our last breath, we need to pursue them for the kingdom of heaven. And that's where the church is They've tried to handle this situation two different ways. They've tried to handle this either angry and combative. Then how's that been working out for them? Or it's affirming and it's going along with whatever they say and just applauding it. And that's not working either. And so I want to tell you this. I want to tell you that I have family members and friends that are in the LGBTQ plus community. 
And I say that if I messed the acronym up, forgive me. It's coming from a place of respect. I promise you it is. But it, that acronym grows every week. So like, it's hard to keep up. By the time this gets posted, there's probably going to be a few more things added to it. But my heart is respect, and my heart is that we value every single human life. And we have to look at it through those lenses. But this is a complicated issue. And I will tell you that I am going to give you an answer to this question. I'm not going to be a coward about it. But I'm going to give you what my family and I's answer is. And then I'm going to give you options and opportunities to study the Word of God so that you and your family can come up with what your answer is to this. Because this is a type of conversation that is much better had within the context of a relationship and maybe over a cup of coffee, coffee that we can talk rather than from a pulpit that is really just, you know, a diatribe while looking at a crowd. It's, it's more a conversation between two humans. What you and I have to do if we are followers of Jesus is something very difficult. We are what the Bible calls ambassadors for Christ. And how you and I live, some of you are so uncomfortable right now, you should see your body language. I've got antiperspirant on, double layer, all right? Because don't be stressed. We're ambassadors for Christ, which means that people who don't know God, fair or not, they view how you live, how you act, how you love, and what you say, and your integrity, and that paints a picture to them of who God is, because they don't know God. So when you're in the room, that's the God they see. That's why it's so important that we're the same people Monday through Saturday as we are on Sunday, because we're painting that picture, and that's heavy. But with our lifestyles, decisions we make, what we affirm, what we approve, what we stand for is painting a picture of God. And I would challenge you to say, are the things that you're for painting an accurate picture of who God is and what his word says? Or are you painting with your lifestyle a picture of who God is not? And then you're deceiving the world because you're painting for them who God is not. And I know that's heavy, but it's an honor. And so I believe that we have to ask ourselves these questions. What is the purpose of marriage? Is the purpose of marriage for companionship? Is the purpose of marriage for procreation? I think the answer is yes to both of those sort of. But they're not, not reasons. But I want to show you in Scripture what I believe the purpose of marriage is. It's found in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I say we just end it right there. Like, let's just call that the end of it and move on to the next question. Is that okay with you? <laughs> I heard an applause. I can guarantee it's from a dude. Guaranteed. I, I, I want you to hear all of this. So you feminists, calm down for a moment. We're going to paint a whole picture here. I want you to hear all of this in its entirety as Paul is painting a picture of what marriage is. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this isn't a chauvinistic, domineering role of a man. It's saying that you are to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. He gave it everything, including his own life. So all of your aspirations, all of the things you think of as a wife being an accessory to you, there's a reason you get married at an altar, because that's where everything goes to die. When my wife met me, I had posters up in my living room. A Simpsons poster, a Halo poster, a Fort, like I mean with thumbtacks in the wall. And I was under the impression since she was moving into my apartment that it would stay that way. It's where things go to die. Let's, let's, let's go back to 26 real quick. That he... God might sanctify her, having cleansed by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, God created marriage for the primary purpose of a reflection of his bride, of Jesus and the church. It's a metaphor for it. Now, sin has completely corrupted that metaphor and changed that whole picture. A couple of weeks ago, I addressed that you are going to have to determine what the line is for your family. If you don't have a line, you're just, you, you're never going to know when far, too far is too far. So you need to establish a line as to what your family is going to do. Now, I forgot to mention this in the first service, but we'll keep them up there for next week. A member of our church put together a print-off of over 50 different scriptures on this topic, and we will have them. They're already printed at Welcome Central for you to pick up, because I want you to do the studying based upon the Word of God to figure out what your line is for your family. And so you have no excuse now. There's all of these. It was put together by somebody with their doctorate, so they're smart. But let the Word of God determine what your compass of mere morality is. Let me tell you what ours is. We have friends and family who are in this community pursuing this lifestyle. They know that I'm not going to withdraw that relationship. They know that I care for them. But just the same as I respect their ability for free will to make decisions, I ask the same in return that they will respect my decisions to follow what my convictions are based upon the Word of God. And it's amazing how you can get along if there's mutual respect and kindness there. It's amazing. But thank you. Yes, praise God. But for my family, I believe that a marriage reflects the bride of Christ. And I believe that God clearly in His Word says that marriage is between one man and one woman. And 
God created marriage. He ordained it. He blessed it. When you go to a wedding, you are standing where a covenant is made in the presence of God, and you're asking him to bless it. And so how does God view a marriage if it is against what his word says, and you're asking him to bless it? But more importantly, I think that if I go, based upon what I believe the word of God says, as an ambassador of Christ, am I painting an accurate picture of who God is? Or am I painting a picture of where I want to be well-liked and well-received over what God says? That's the line for my family and I. Figure out what your line is. Let the Holy Spirit lead you to that. And I trust that he will. All right, that's done. Are we good? Jeez. I said, don't take it easy on me. And you're like, okay, shots fired. Bet. Let's see what you got. Last question of this whole series. This one came in online. It says, you can't prove to me that God is real, but go ahead and give it a try. First of all, bro, a bit aggressive. A bit aggressive. But I'm not going to shy away from it. We can have the band come up. That's how you know we're done. I'm going to flip this question. Because my tendency is to try to be the defense attorney for God. My tendency is to, you know, quote Billy Graham's amazing sermon about being able to see the effects of the wind without seeing the wind and go through scripture about faith and it's impossible to please God and all of that. And many men and women have done it better than I have and they've done it for a long time. So I'm going to flip the question. And if it was one of you in this room, a little aggressive, but I respect the alpha move, I really do. Rather than me trying to prove to you that God is real, I want you to try to prove to me that God isn't real. Here's why. Because you don't know who I was. You don't know what I've been forgiven of. You don't know the things I did. And yet, even when I was in that broken state that God pursued me and called me by name, you don't know when my marriage was on life support and God redeemed it and restored it, you don't know. You don't know the restoration of relationships that he's done that I thought would never be healed. You don't know the areas of my life that were wounds from my childhood that I thought I would have to carry forever, that not only did he heal, but now he uses them for his glory. Don't hear my story. You can hear it, but don't tell me that God isn't real because you don't know what I've been through. I want to end it with Acts 4.13. This was my verse of the year a couple of years ago. This is a great way for us, us to end this series. I think maybe it might like be a life. If I'm not careful, I may have just found my life verse, though. I don't really, you know, you know why I'm not going to do it. I want you to hear this, though. When I first heard this, like, I remember weeping when I, when I first started reading it. It says this, Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, talking about a crowd of people, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. One translation says they were amazed, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. One translation says, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. So they saw Peter and John walk into a room and they're like, these guys are nobody. They're not smart. 
They're not rich. They're not, they don't have a lot of charisma. They're just normal guys, but they were amazed at their boldness. Man, too many Christians these days are not bold. You'll die for Christ, but you won't live for Christ because you back down at every time that you can live for him. What I want when I walk in a room, and I want it for you, is I want when I walk in a room, no matter who's there, no matter the audience, no matter the circumstance, that people are like, I don't know who this guy is. He's a nobody from nowhere, but I can tell that he's spent time with the Lord. I can tell that he's been with Jesus. If you ever been in the room with somebody that when they walk in, you can feel the Holy Spirit just permeate off of them. You can feel that they got a prayer closet. You could feel that their war room, they're bringing things to God 24-7. Like, I remember when Billy Graham was on Larry King, and Larry King said, how can you cease, never cease praying? And he said, I'm praying right now. Even as I'm talking to you, I am listening to see if God is going to say anything to me. And I remember watching that going, that's what I want. I want when I walk in a room, no one to be impressed with me, to forget my name, but I want them to tell that I've spent time with Jesus. I want them to take note that I've been with Jesus. So when you go to work, when you go to your job, when you go to your neighborhood, when you go home, I want people to know, I don't know who that person is. I don't know why. I don't even necessarily believe what they believe or agree with what they say, but I know they're authentic. And I know they're willing to die and live for Jesus. That's my prayer. Can we be bold as a lion, the lion of Judah? know that we've spent time with Jesus.